last week we explored a little bit about what an inheritance was and what it looked like as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've also seen how the preacher has explained how in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the shedding of blood was, was necessary, uh, absolutely necessary, for the purification of the earthly tabernacle, that, that tent that God met with his people there in the wilderness, uh, particularly in the first five books, particularly Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, where God would meet with his people before the temple was built. All of this was foreshadowing the need for the Lord Jesus Christ to bring blood, a better blood, a better covenant, a better mediator to purify not the earthly copy there, that tent in the tabernacle, but rather into heaven itself. So today we're going to begin reading. I'm going to start back just a little bit just to set some context for us in chapter 9, verse 11. So if you would give your attention, utmost attention to the Word of God, I'll begin in chapter 9, verse 11, but we're going to be particularly looking at verses 23 through 28. This is the Word of the living God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, set apart consecrate for the purification of our bodies of the flesh that which is external how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God therefore he that is Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise in internal inheritance or sense or because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first Mosaic covenant for where a will is involved or diatheke color covenant takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first Mosaic covenant was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he, Moses, took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he, Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, that is the Mosaic Covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, so it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, i.e. the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, 
But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year, that is the day of atonement, with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all, or once for all time at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. May he add his eternal blessing to what we've read. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray for understanding. You who gave this revelation through your apostles and prophets and breathed it out, exhaled it as it were through these men. We pray now that you would come in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that breathed it out would grant us illumination. For these things are only spiritually discerned by the Holy Spirit. So come and be our teacher. Come and bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart. May I decrease and may the Lord Jesus Christ increase. And may the church be edified and equipped for every good work. And may any who do not know Jesus Christ who sit before me this day come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord and Savior, being regenerated by his Holy Spirit, that they too might live a life worthy of the calling of his holy name. We pray and we would ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit now. Amen. I want you to, I want to ask you a question rather. Did you notice how the author speaks in the text of three appearances of Jesus this morning. How he once appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, right? He now appears because he once appeared. Secondly, he appeared, right, to put away sin once and for all. And then thirdly, we're told that he's going to reappear on the last day when he will come not to bear sins as he did in his first advent, but rather to bring salvation in the most completed sense to those who are eagerly waiting and longing for him. So what I'd like to do this morning is to take the text that I've just read and look at it under these three headings. So first, Jesus appeared in the presence of of God on our behalf in verses 23 to 24. Jesus appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, verses 23 to 24. Notice how the author of the preacher begins with the word therefore, right? Like a rearview mirror, he wants us to reflect back on what he's just said regarding the need for blood to purify the earthly tabernacle, that is the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to erect there in the wilderness, in the desert, in the Mosaic Covenant. And saints, what the preacher is doing, what he's doing, he's making a logical argument. And the logic is that if the copy, that is the the tent that was there in the wilderness that Moses erected, needed purifying with blood, how much more, right, How much more than the heavenly reality? 
But you're asking yourself, if you're hearing me and you're following the logic, the syllogistic logic of the text, you're asking yourself this question. Why does heaven need to be purified? Why do the heavenly things that the author speaks of need to be purified? Isn't heaven, the tabernacle in heaven, already purified? F.F. Bruce, a fine commentator on the book of Hebrews, I believe gets it pretty close. There's some debate about what exactly is being said here, but he says this. The heavenly things in need of purification is not referring to heaven itself, but to the saints who need to be cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ so that we too can go into the holy place, right? The most holy place, not the copy there in the tabernacle in the wilderness, but into the holy of holies, God's very throne room. We need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. We need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. However we understand the purification of the heavenly things here that the author is speaking of, the point, the most important point, is the point he wants to reassert that Christ's heavenly high priestly ministry is carried out not in a man-made tabernacle, but in heaven itself, right? Notice what he says in verse 24. For Christ has entered, what? Not into holy places made with hands, that is of this creation, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself. Why? Why has Christ entered into heaven itself? So that he may now appear in the presence of God on whose behalf? On our behalf. You see, we need the the mediation. We need the intercession of the Lamb of God. We need to be cleansed by the active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can go into the Holy of Holies, that we can go where no man has ever gone except Jesus Christ, and we go in him by faith and faith alone. You see, and like every high priest before him in the Old Covenant, Christ offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The difference was that Christ did not take the blood of animals, but he took his own blood that he might secure our entrance, our warrant to come into the holy place of God. You see, saints, by the means of his own blood, Shed at his cross, Jesus did what no other human being had done. He went into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He went into heaven representing you as your substitute, securing your inheritance, securing your forgiveness, securing your adoption, securing your sanctification, securing all of the benefits that he has procured in his life and death and resurrection, that he might adopt us, that he might give us a a heavenly Sabbath rest that's held out for us, that we're called and exhorted to persevere, that we might enter into it one day. He's purchased not only the end, the rest, he's purchased the, the means, the perseverance. He's purchased all of that for you, that you might believe on his holy name. You see, this is the great salvation that Jesus has wrought and secured for us as our advocate, as our intercessor. He represents us both in his life and his death. You see, Jesus has secured for you full access to the throne of grace. So this week when you're struggling, 
You're thinking about giving up because life is difficult. It's hard because this world is not our home. It's an exile. Right? It has thorns and thistles. There's frustration. The earth itself groans. Let me remind you from Romans 8. Often look at the trees, the birds of the air, the insects, the stars, and you can think. Paul says the earth groans under the weight of sin that was introduced through the disobedience of one man. But praise God, through the obedience of another man, a faithful Adam, a true Israel, new creation has dawned. And yet, we live in between the already and not yet of these two realities. So therefore, we groan. We groan because we have this great hope that's held out before us in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all of these blessings are ours and countless more because of the better blood, of the better sacrifice, of the better mediator, of the better covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts has it right when he said this, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. You see, when this gospel and the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ for you, who were without hope, you are without God, you are an object of wrath, but God, who being rich in mercy, set his love on you, when that truth begins to capture your heart, capture your mind, capture the totality of your being from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot, it begins to enlarge your affections. You begin to sing. You begin to get lost in the love and wonder and praise of our God. So that's the first point this morning. Jesus appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. He's there now, ever living to make intercession for us. Five bleeding wounds he pleads, right? He's pleading for us. Father, continue that work in Joe and Susan and Bill and Mike and Hannah. Bring them all the way home, Father. You see, he's praying even now. But secondly, notice, Jesus appeared once for all to put away sins. Jesus appeared once for all to put away sins in verses 25 to 26. You see, saints, Christ entered heaven by means of his own blood, shed at the cross, shed at Calvary, once for all time. Now, some might say, well, once for all, for all people. No, that's not what it's saying. This is a, a, a spatial word here. It's referring to time, right? Not, not all people. He's not advocating universalism. But he's saying, for once and for all, there was a definitive act of God in the cross of Jesus Christ where he died once for all. He put away sin. You see, how different Jesus' high priestly ministry is from the old covenant high priest, right? In the old Mosaic covenant, the high priest, once a year on the day of atonement, would, would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of an animal sacrifice to make atonement. And this went on repeatedly year after year, all the while teaching the people God would one day provide a lamb. God would one day provide a human sacrifice that would take away the sins of God's people. All of this was happening year after year, for the problem was the blood of animals could not achieve 
real forgiveness. But Christ, by virtue of his own sacrifice, offering his own blood, has entered heaven on our behalf once and for all time. It's not repeatable, nor need it be repeatable, right? Because Christ made a perfect sacrifice with superior blood, he, unlike the old covenant high priest, does not have to repeatedly make his offering, right? Look at verse 26, the second half of it. But as he, Christ, has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because Christ's offering was his own death, it's unthinkable that he would undergo this suffering repeatedly over and over again, he says, since the foundation of the world. No, rather, Christ came at the end of the ages. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, in these last days, as the writer to the Hebrews told us in chapter 1. You see, the fulcrum of all of human history was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. At just the right time, Jesus Christ born under the law of a virgin, came to fulfill the law for us in his active obedience because those who obey live, those who do not cursed. So he comes and fulfills the righteousness required that we might inherit life, and he bears in his own flesh the curse that's des that we deserve by virtue of our disobedience to the law. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in the book of the law to do it. You see, Jesus Christ, both in his life and his death, has done all that's necessary to secure so great a salvation. It is the culmination of all that Christ has done that inaugurates the kingdom of God in these last days. You see, it's vital to, to understand and to read the word of God in a redemptive, historical, progressive under understanding way, right, that God reveals his revelation through history. It's developing from Genesis 3.15 where the promise of the seed of the woman was first given, of the crushing of the head of the serpent to the very end. God in these last days has now revealed Jesus Christ. In Christ, he's entered and ushered in this new creation. He's died once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And you see, God the Father has accepted the Son's offering. And by saving union, he's accepted us. And we can have assurance that there's nothing more needed to solve our sin problem than the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, in the rigors of life, there's always something else to do, right? It's never done. The work is never done. Moms know this. If anyone knows this, moms know this. There's always more to do. There's always more laundry. There's always more meals, more rides to give to the children. Always something else to be done. Always, kids, there's more homework, right? But when it comes to salvation, we're told in verse 28, Christ offered himself once to bear the sins of many. How many times? Once. It's finished. Sin's debt has been paid in full, and sin's dominion has been defeated. Beloved, there's no other offering to bring. There's nothing else to give. All that needs doing has been done. Christ's presence in heaven secures your presence in heaven with the Father. Any attempt to re-offer Christ's sacrifice or to call into question the sufficiency of Christ's one offering is an insult to God. It's blasphemous. 
This is what makes the Catholic Mass such a grave error. To think that you need to re-offer Jesus Christ each and every week, each and every day. It's to fly in the face of the clear revelation of the Word of God. Christ died once, once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. It's finished when Jesus says on the cross on that good Friday afternoon in John 19, it is finished, it's finished. Lay down your works, lay down your rituals, lay down your self-righteousness, lay down your sin and look to the Lamb of God. Trust in the Lamb of God. Rest in the Lamb of God. He is your righteousness. He is your Sabbath rest. In case some think that I would be taking up being too polemical to the Catholic Church, let me just speak to some of my Protestant brothers and sisters who insist that a sinner must perform some good work, that you need Jesus Christ plus baptism. You need Jesus Christ plus homeschooling. Jesus Christ plus classical schooling. Jesus Christ plus whatever you fill in the blank. To secure forgiveness in addition to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is to degrade what Christ has secured at the cross. You see, friends, all you need to approach God is this, to, to trust Jesus Christ and Him alone to bring you into God's presence through His finished work. That your sins, which deserve the wrath and curse of God, have been paid at Calvary. So this morning, abandon self and all self-effort. Cast yourself totally on Christ's love in Christ. Beloved, as long as Jesus is in heaven, no sinner who calls upon his name for salvation shall be denied, shall be turned away. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all who come to me I will no wise cast out. You see, the problem is not Jesus' reception of us, it's our refusal to come to him. You see, what needed to be done has been done what access we have, what a great cost it was secured, how great is the love that gave the Son, how wise the eternal plan of salvation. As Rick read from Micah, right, who is a God like this who secures so great a salvation, who removes your sins as far as the east is from the west, right? If you go west and you continue to go west, you'll never meet the east. It's an indefinite, infinite circle. You can never complete it. God has removed it. He's cast them into the sea. He, you bear them no more. So he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And secondly, Jesus appeared once to put away sin. And then lastly, notice what's going to happen. This third appearance. Jesus will appear a second time to save those who eagerly wait for him. In verse 27, the, the preacher picks up on the once for all sacrifice and draws an analogy Notice the analogy, the comparison he's making between our own death, that's once for all, and the death of Christ that was once for all. Notice what he says here in verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, beloved, what he wants us to see first this morning is that there are two inescapable sobering facts here in verse 27. Not death and taxes, but death followed by judgment. The soul that sins will surely die. You're going to die, and when you die, you're going to face 
the judgment. It's inevitable. I can uh, remember back in the 80s, yeah, that seems like forever ago, 1980s, I was living in South Carolina at Myrtle Beach, and I can't remember what hurricane it was. I don't know if it's Hugo or not. Maybe you can help me out after the service. But I can remember living there, and the hurricane was barreling toward the coast, and I'm on the coast. Wind speeds well over 140 miles an hour. Everyone who was smart would evacuate, but I didn't. Some of us decided to remain and hunker down and, you know, survive the storm some way. I wasn't a believer at the time, but I was a God-fearer in that I knew I was going to die. I had that reality. It haunted me, praise God for that, and his common grace, preparing my heart to receive effectual calling, saving grace. But as we sat there waiting and beginning to hear the storm rustle outside in the building, thinking we were safe, and I think we were. It was, it was a concrete building. I thought to myself, and as I thought about this text, God's judgment is like a hurricane, isn't it? It's out there. It's coming. It's not here yet, but we know it's coming. We can sense it. In our heart of hearts, we know it. It's enormous, it's, it's terrifying, it's heading our way. We can't avoid it, we can't run for it. We can't wish it away. We can't choose to not believe it's not coming. So many people say, well, I choose not to believe it. <laughs> Big D, who cares what you choose to believe or not believe? What's true, objectively? What's real? <laughs> Reality is the storm is coming. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen says, For God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing God is going to bring into judgment, whether good or evil, every word that you've ever uttered, good or bad, every tweet that you've put down and sent, everything is before the purview of the living God. Friends, what we need is, is someone who can stand the brunt of the storm that's coming, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to verse 28, offered himself once to bear the sins of many. He died once to face the judgment on behalf of every single person who trusts in him this morning. Don't be mistaken. There's no way to escape the storm. Only Christ can save us from the judgment to come. And because we have this hope in Christ... Not wishful thinking, but biblical hope grounded and anchored in the person of Christ. The author picks up this reality in verse 28, this hope, the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his second advent, his second appearing. Notice what he says here in verse 28b, Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, right? We've already established the fact he suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He's going to appear again, but it's not going to be in humiliation, in the state of humiliation, not to suffer at the cross. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb who brings the wrath of God is coming. And we're told that everyone who loves him are eagerly waiting for him. As I think about this eagerly waiting for him, I, I'm thinking this 
week about those videos that you see of, of folks, family members, and loved ones waiting in the airport for someone to return from a trip that's been away a long time. There's a longing, there, there's a waiting, there's a looking, and time moves ever so slowly. There's an anticipation when you get to the airport. And then the returning loved one turns the corner as they come down the gate. And you see that familiar walk. You can't even really make out the face, but you know the walk, right? You can just tell who that's who it is. <laughs> your focus begins to intensify. Your, your eyes begin to widen. A smile begins to grace your face, and, and tears of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude begin to fill your eyes. You feel as though you're going to burst, and then you're finally reunited. There's the warm embrace and the love and the unspoken words that are just understood by the hug. Unfortunately, though, that's not the way that most of us view the return of Jesus Christ. Yes, in the abstract, we say we're looking forward to it, right? If I asked you this morning as the church, are you looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? You'd say, well, yes, I believe that Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. We're not as always as eager as we could be. But you see, church, Jesus is coming back not to bear sins, but to bring salvation in its fullest sense, to deliver his church out of this broken world when, when sin will be no more. And those who are trusting in Christ this morning will share in the hope of heaven and heaven's glory. Even now while we live currently in this veil of tears, as, as we live out the Christian life in the wilderness, in the exile of the world, with brokenness and sin all around us, with wars and rumors of wars, as we've seen, evil, atrocities, killing of babies, beheading of babies. Church, this is our heart. This is your heart. Now, you don't believe that, but the Word of God says that about you. You're capable of doing that very thing, except for the grace of God. That's the truth. That's the, the diagnosis. That's the, the biblical verdict. That's why you need to be reborn again. My God, you, it's not that God's going to put you up beside the guy from Hamas or Hezbollah or ISIS and say, well, you're better than him. Well, you can get in. No. No, you will not get in. The door will be shut. There's only one way to get in. And that's through the merits and the work of the one sacrifice of the Son of God. Have you done business with him? Do you know God in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him? That's all you need to do is to trust him, to abandon all hope in self, all hope in work and righteousness, in ritual, and look solely to Christ and Christ alone. This morning I want to conclude by looking and thinking about what it would look like to eagerly wait for Jesus. What would it look like in life and in practice? Right? Not hypothetically, not in the abstract, but in practice. First, I believe if we were eagerly looking and longing for the return of the Son of God, we would beware of growing too comfortable in the world. Beware of worldliness. He who loves the world is at enmity with God. And when I mean world, I'm not talking about the creation that was created good, 
without defilement before sin. I'm just talking about worldliness, that, that spirit of antithesis to everything that is holy, that everything that is reflective of who God is. The spirit of the age, the God of this age, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what I'm talking about. Beware of this. You see, the more at home we are in this world, the less likely we will long for the world to come. You know, I've often heard it said, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. And I can tell you, along with Lloyd-Jones, I've never met this person. I've never met the person who was so heavenly minded he was no earthly good. You see, beloved, it's only those who think most on heaven and the life to come and the reward that is in heaven, which is God himself, which do the most good in this life before heaven. Be ready to embrace trials. Trials, I heard it said this week, trials are the furrows that break up the hard heart so the word of God can be planted in and bring forth a harvest of righteousness, right? We think of trials, no, God, give me everything but trials. But the psalmist says, Lord, I thank you for my afflictions because in those afflictions, I learned how to trust you. I learned your faithfulness. I learned your goodness. I learned your mercy. I learned the sweetness of your holy law. I learned all of this through trials and tribulations because you love me and you discipline me. Paul says about these trials in this life, for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So remember that we're pilgrims, we're exiles awaiting a heavenly homeland. Secondly, what would it look like to eagerly long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must be constantly casting off the works of darkness and putting on the works of righteousness. This is just Christian life 101. This is sanctification, progressive sanctification. Putting off sin, putting on Christ. Putting off sin, putting on Jesus Christ. Daily. Mortification, vivification, however you want to phrase it. That's all it is, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So this morning, if you're caught up in some besetting sin, I want you to cry out to God, and I want you to ask him to to give you deliverance. Ask one of your elders to pray for you, to come alongside, to agree with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God loves to answer the prayer when his children call, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is ready and willing and able to answer that prayer. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, notice what he says as he reflects on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we reflect on that coming, that second advent, right, not theoretically, not abstractly, but practically, when he he will grace the sky with the sound of a trumpet, his lightning, the Lord Jesus will appear. Paul says this, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him also in glory. And then thirdly and lastly, Stir up the affections of your heart for Christ. 
Meditate and reflect on his person and work. You see, saints, we will only long for Christ and his coming if we long for him. Think again of the wife whose husband's been away on a long journey. What does she do in anticipation of his return? Maybe she takes out his picture and she thinks about him, wondering what he's doing, what's he thinking, where's he at, what's he eating, is he taking care of himself? She picks up his letters and she rereads those letters about how much he loves her and he cares for her. She sets her heart on her husband. Well, you church, we have letters too. Our bridegroom has left us letters. 27, right, in the New Testament. 39 in the Old, to reflect upon him, to to think upon him. Just as the wife, she's always placing him, the husband, at the center of her heart. So we must place Jesus at the center of our heart and imagination. We need to read his letters. We need to meet with him in prayer. We need to ask him for his Holy Spirit. For he's coming again. He's died. He's been raised. He ever lives now to make intercession for us. And one day he will come again. And I leave you with this from Revelations twenty-two twenty. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This morning, are you ready? A storm's coming. There's only one road to evacuate. You go to the Outer Banks, they close off all those roads. There's only one way out of there. There's only one way to evacuate the storm that's coming. And that road is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, that's a scandal. That's offensive in our, in our age today. But who cares? It's true. Wouldn't you rather escape? Wouldn't you rather be scandalized and offended? Oh, to be offended for the truth? When you go to the doctor, do you want him to tell you the truth? Or are you afraid he's going to offend you if he tells you? You have stage four pancreatic cancer, Mr. Bullock. You have four weeks to live. I don't go to hear pleasantries. I go to hear the truth. There's only one road out of the storm, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? (laughs) Are you trusting in him and him alone, both in this life and for the next? May he give us grace to trust him and the once-for-all sacrifice, sufficient, total, no deficiencies, beautiful. Let's pray.